0: The Eighth Command is all about what is yours. So the question is, what is yours? And do you steal what isn't yours? The Eighth Command is four words, you shall not steal. In the original Hebrew, just two words, meaning the same thing that we have translated into English. This command, though, it, it, it seems pretty simple to figure out. It's pretty simple in its understanding and pretty simple in its application. But within these four words is found the genius and the infinite wisdom of God. Wisdom? Genius? In these four words? I mean, how can this be? I mean, this seems like it's pretty elementary stuff. I mean, something that you teach every infant, don't take what's not yours. But within these four words is the foundation for the entire civilization that we live in. In fact, it was the basis for the civilization that Adam and Eve were created to live within. Sin didn't alter that. It didn't change it. And within these four words, God laid the foundation for all private ownership of property, stewardship of that property, accountability for what we have been given, and the expectation, the expectation that we would achieve much with those things that God has put at our disposal. This is what the eighth command lays out for us. And the eighth command is unique. The first four commands... They give to us the biblical understanding of who God is and how we are to relate to him and worship him. The fifth command protects family and teaches us how to relate with each other and with God. The sixth command protects the sanctity of life. Seventh command protects the covenant of marriage. The ninth command protects truth. Tenth command require or protects the purity of our heart and being content with the things which God has given you. The Ten Commandments, though, were never given to us to make bad people good or even to make good people better. They were to show a covenant people the reality of the God that had made the covenant with them. In fact, the Ten Commandments is the life more abundantly meaning of John 10.10. You you know that when Jesus said that he came to give you life and life more abundantly, he was actually speaking to living people at that time. You realize that? He was speaking to living people and he's telling them, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. He is that abundant life. His life is that. And these things were given these 10 commandments were given to set these people apart from all other peoples of the world. These people were to be God's representatives as his covenant people to the world. And they were given to reveal to these covenant people that reality that while they were chosen, the chosen people of God, unless they were morally perfect every single moment of every single day of their lives, not just in their actions, and in their words, but in their thoughts. If that wasn't the case, that they were under the condemnation of the God that was making this covenant with them. This is the reality that's told to us in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 29, which tell us, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all the sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the purpose. This same truth Paul echoed in saying, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. We are all saved by grace. These are his actions outside of us, giving us a new heart and the faith to believe. But our actions... How we live does matter because we are, after all, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the elect of God, sons of God. We are supposed to look different than the world, act different than the world, and even think different than the world. And the Ten Commandments are still the list that are given to us in order that we can strive to demonstrate to this dead hurting world, the reality of those, the reality of their only hope of ever being restored to right standing with this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. But without the Eighth Command, we as humans, we could not function as a society. With these four words, God laid the foundation for all private ownership of property, stewardship of that property, accountability for that property, and the expectation that we would achieve much with the things that are at our disposal. There are many people today, this is, that in, in itself is, is called the capital market system. And there are many people today that think that communism, communal living, that's much better than the free market system of government. Even within the church, we find this. Those within the church try using the early church as found in the book of Acts as proof of this. They'll read to you Acts 4, 32 through 36, and that which says, "No, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They'll point these verses out to you and say, this is, this, See, this is how the church is supposed to be. But there's a couple fatal claw, flaws in looking at a passage of scripture like this one and trying to make it a regular principle. First of all, did you notice that they brought what they owned and freely gave it? They weren't forced, they weren't mandated. Second, this section of Scripture never says that there were no poor among them, just that there were none that were needy. Their basic needs were being met by the generous outpouring of those who did possess. And third, there is nowhere else in the Bible, any place where this type of action is mandated or even spoken of as being required or even happening. And do you realize that in all the churches that were planted in that first century, that none of them them are told to have actually acted in this manner? And do you realize how many churches were planted within those first 30 years after the ascension of Christ? All of them. There were no churches before then. And every church that was alive after was born out of these who were part of that Acts 4 crowd. And none of them were communal. And then finally, fourth, the account of Barnabas at the end there, that's actually given to us an example of how these saints were actually acting in telling us this. And in case you were dozing when I read that, I'm going to read it to you again. Thus Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. He sold the field. He didn't sell his house. He didn't give all that he owned. He sold the field that he owned. This was not communal living. This was the saints caring for each other, caring for the body. But communal living, though, here in the Americas isn't new. Did you know that the first English settlement in America was Jamestown in Virginia. Happened in 1607, 13 years before the pilgrims landed at at Plymouth Rock. And did you also know that Jamestown was a major disaster? It was almost completely vanished into history within the first couple of years of of its existence. And when you search the history books, the reason that they tell you that this actually happened was because of drought, starvation, threats of attack, and diseases. But in reality, what they won't tell you is that Jamestown, when it was first settled, was a commune. It was an experiment to prove that people were good and that good people working together for a common cause will prevail and will flourish. And it proved an unmitigated disaster. Again, you're going to have to dig to find the facts because this is not what they're going to be teaching you in American history. But suffice to say, when you actually do dig, you will find that what occurred is what always occurs when there is no property ownership. True humanity comes shining through. No one in Jamestown wanted to work any harder than anybody else did, since there was no personal gain to it. Think about this. Why should you go out and work hard? clearing lands, planting crops, hunting game, when old John sat there with his buddies drinking cool drinks and playing cards. Within the first two years, almost two-thirds of those people there died of starvation and freezing. And during the winter of 1609, two years after they landed there, they resorted to cannibalism to survive. Talk about communal living at its best. And then in 1610, it all changed. A new governor showed up and instituted new rules, and those rules, you don't work, you don't eat, you will not steal. That was once again instituted, and the colony then then began to flourish. The Eighth Command protects property and possessions. Things that you would think that God wouldn't care much about. And many Christians today think that the root of evil is money. And this thinking is held only because these people are actually Gnostics in their thinking. Thinking that this world, the things of this world are evil. And that God is spirit and spirit is holy. And they think this because they've taken God's word out of context. But God made the entire universe including these things that would be possessed. And he intends that we possess things. He created the world beautiful and useful for us to marvel at and to benefit from. And if this weren't so, then he wouldn't have created it beautiful and useful. And he wouldn't have given us the command not to steal. Once again, With these four words, God laid the foundation for all private ownership of property, stewardship of that property, accountability for that ownership, and the expectation that you will achieve much with the things that you have at your disposal. But see, this is where we as humans go all sideways. Because we more than often, we just think on this horizontal plane even when it comes to the Ten Commandments. We think, when we think of them, when we think of the Eighth Commandment, we think, well, what does this mean about our actions concerning other humans? I mean, isn't that the thing that we've always been taught, concerning the cliff notes that Jesus gave us, concerning the Ten Commandments, where he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, that you love your neighbor yourself. Uh, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's Matthew 22, 37 through, 30, through 40. Aren't we taught that that first command that Jesus is speaking about there is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? That's speaking just to the first four commands and the commands to love your neighbor itself is speaking to the other six. But the truth is that the cliff notes on the commands of God, all They all speak to us loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And our actions towards others are merely a reflection of our heart towards God. And this truth speaks to the reason for the eighth command, and even the implications on how we view these things that God has given us not just the material things, but the spiritual things, how we even view salvation. But before we get to that, though, we have to determine the why of the Eighth Command and how we are supposed to understand it on a vertical level, not just a horizontal one. In his infinite wisdom, God has created us in his own image. Do you realize he owns that? His image is his, and he created us in his image. He's given that to us as well as this planet and this universe to live within. They are his. They're given to us. And God is a God of order, of purpose, of creation. And for this reason, for these reasons, he has given us the abilities to create, to order, to have purpose. And to do this, we must own. We must possess And we must be held accountable for how we are to act toward those things that we do own, that we do possess. Outside of ownership, the ability to create is not possible. Outside of ownership, the ability to order is not possible. Outside of ownership, there can be no purpose. And in the original creation, God, after creating the heavens and the earth, everything within them, he created then his magnus opus, humanity. And to them, these God-created, God-breathed humans, he told them this. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, Genesis one twenty-eight. God commanding Adam and Eve there to have dominion over everything on the earth doesn't mean that they were to rule it with an iron fist, to force everything into submission under their will. It means that God has given them his stuff. And he's given it to them to be stewards of. They are, they were responsible for it. How it was managed, how it was cared for. And this reality is echoed in Psalm 24 verses 1 and 2. There it says the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And these, that Genesis verse and the Psalm 24 verses, they all tie in with our Exodus 20 verse from today. You will not steal. So what exactly is this verse telling us? It's telling us that things... Material possessions belong to people. God ordained this to be, and that there will be more. There will be people that will have more possessions than others. How do you know that? Because we're forbidden from taking that which is not ours, something that we don't have but might want. And second, the command not to steal is telling us that since we are given things to own, Just as Adam was given the garden and given that woman Eve, we, like him, are responsible for being a good steward of those things which we are given. And as with Adam and Eve, we understand that you can possess something without actually owning it. The garden was his responsibility. Eve was his responsibility. She was his wife. And no one was to steal her any more than they were to steal his car. Again, this ties in with Psalm 24 verses that tell us that the earth is the Lord's and that all that is within it. But frankly, though, nothing that you own do you ever really own. You don't take it with you when you die. It stays here. It transfers ownership to somebody else. And once you grasp, though, that the command of God has commanded that no one steal from you, though, once you understand that, you have to realize that those things which are yours are given to you by God. And then you have to realize that you are responsible for how you use those things. And this is called stewardship. You shouldn't be so spoiled that you don't care for the things that God has put in your life to use and enjoy. I mean, how many parents hate that you give, you know, you spend your hard-earned money on your kids and you buy them a present and they leave it out and it gets rained on and ruined. And they're like, eh, whatever. But there are those that would say that caring for the things that you own is worshiping them. And while there is a danger of worshiping the things that God has given you, caring for them and using them properly is not worshiping them. It's obeying and worshiping the one that has given them to you. And now are you beginning to see the genius with the mind of God? How he orders his creation and then charges us as his image bearers to emulate him in our daily lives? He owns all of creation. And he cares for it deeply. Jesus used his father, the care of his father, as a comparison for how we are to live. In Matthew 6, he began, he began talking about ownership and stewardship there. First, he began talking about ownership, verses 19 through 21. He tells us there, don't lay it for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. That is called the biblical principle. And it's not just biblical, though, but it's also the truth of life. And here, he's not saying that ownership is bad or wrong, he's just telling us to be wise. I mean, think about it. Is it wise to spend the same amount of money on an inferior item? I mean, if clothes all cost the same, think about it. If clothes all cost the same, would you go to Walmart still and buy your clothes instead of going to Macy's? I mean, if if meals all cost the same, would you still go to Arby's and eat instead of going to Outback Steakhouse? Would you ever spend your money on an inferior item, when you could have a much better one, for at the same cost. See, there's one gift that all humans have that actually relates to these comparisons. We've all been given the great gift of God called time, and it spends the same everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're at the mall or at college. It spends the same. It spends the same in front of the TV as it does with your covenant community. It spends the same at work or at play. And your time is worth something. And you will be held accountable for what you did with this gift that God has given to you. Which is one reason why I really dislike time thieves. You know those people. The ones who have no regard for your time. They're constantly late to an appointment. Or you show up and they're not prepared to start on time or end on time. Or they're willing to steal your time by filling it with things that don't provide to you what they promised you. But how you spend your time does matter. That's what Jesus is saying. You can either store up treasure here, working for material possessions, those things that the unsaved are telling you that are worth living for. Or you can spend your, your time, same time, same cost, same amount of, 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 of equity and same value. You can spend that time working for treasure that no man, no demon, no time can steal from you. That will never rust, that will never get damaged, it will never decay. And because of the infinite and awesome mind of God, we have this truth. And in economics, if you've ever studied economics at all, this is called return on investment. An ROI, which is, re- what is our return on investment is, is the driving factor for those that desire to lay up treasure here on earth. They want the greatest ROI that they could possibly get. And in fact, though, as a Christian, it should be our driving factor as well. In essence, this is one area that God has given all humans the same amount of wealth. We're all given just 24 hours each day. Some are given more days than others, but every person has the same amount of time every day to invest. And we actually all do invest our time each and every day, and we invest it on those things that we think are going to give us the best return on our investment. But the question is, do we obey Christ? Do we even hear the verses that Jesus just said, to not lay up treasure where moth can destroy, where they can rust? Do we even hear that as a command and not a suggestion? Do we understand that this command is being given to us to help us to assist us? It's not just one of those biblical sayings that you know, but never heed. Do we understand that this command is given us to help us determine if, in fact, we are of the elect and not just one of those that are going to be that will hear depart from me, "I never knew you." This is what those verses. Beginning with Matthew, um, with verse twenty-two of Matthew six, are telling us, which are the following verses behind that. There, Jesus says, "The eye of the lamp is uh, of the body. I'm sorry. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness?" Now, this, this saying, that saying, that explanation is kind of under, hard to understand. I mean, what does laying up treasure here have to do with a good eye or a bad eye? The answer to that is found in a parable that Jesus tells later about that parable of the workers in the vineyard. You know the story. A vineyard owner hires people to pick grapes for him, and he continues throughout the day to hire workers. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same amount. And those that were hired at the beginning of the day, they were the only ones that haggled over payment, but they were the ones that grumbled that the men hired at the end of the day got paid the same amount as they did. And here's the response of that vineyard owner, as told to us by Jesus. He said, But he replied to one of them, Friend, am I doing you no wrong? I'm sorry, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with that what I choose, what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Verses 13 through 15. So did you hear the analogy, the bad eye analogy there? No? Well, that's because what we have rendered as do you begrudge my generosity is a total paraphrase and not a translation or do you begrudge my generosity? That is a very loose paraphrase of this. Or is your eye bad because I am good? The bad eye here parallels, parallels that bad eye of Matthew 6.23. What Jesus is meaning for us to see in both accounts is that the bad eye is your heart. The bad eye is the eye that cannot see the beauty and the worth of the generosity of God and the grace of Christ that is more swayed by the shiny object of this world, the fleeting pleasures of this life, and are willing to spend their God-given time on the pursuit of these things rather than on the true beauty, the true treasure of the truth of God and his amazing grace that has redeemed them. And this is why Jesus followed up that bad eye account with this in verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And here again, he is not saying that owning is wrong or bad, only that you are to be a good steward of those things that God has given you. And he has given you time, and you will be held accountable for how you have spent it. And then Jesus ends this section on the Sermon of the Mount. The section about owning, about treasure and possessions with this, in verse 25 he says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What Jesus is asking here is all about the economics of the gift that he has given you. The thing that you possess, that you are going to be held accountable for, your time. And then beginning in verse 26, he uses the animals of creation as the comparison to us, the redeemed. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow or no reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This question is actually supposed to be asked and answered by you. Do you see yourself as being of more value to God than the birds? Yes or no? I hope you say yes. And have you ever seriously looked or thought about how the animals of creation are cared for? I mean, how are they, how do they survive and how do they thrive? How is that even possible? Because they're smart? Or is it just because the environmental situations just happen to be such that they can? No. It is God who is caring for them. Providing for them. He is master over them. And Jesus desires us to understand this, which is why he then circles back around to the concept of ROI in verse 27, when he tells us, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Once again, speaking about that gift of time. And then he says, why are you anxious about clothing? speaking about the gift of possessions. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of his field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Are you of little faith? If you can see Christ as your Savior, he has given this to you. Do you understand that? You didn't do that. But have you been a good steward of that faith that he has given you? Have you exercised that faith? Trust it in him to the point that you don't fear, that you're not anxious. Trust it in him to the point that you obey and you don't ask things like, who's going to provide for us if I lose my job? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you here is the summation of all this section of scripture here is the thing that Jesus desires us the redeemed those that have been given the gift of life eternal life this is the i that Jesus has given us and commands us to use here and this is how and where he the gift giver expects us to spend the valuable his hard earned time because our life is not our own it is his this is where he expects us to, to expend his hard earned time on not yours do you steal Do you realize that the eighth command is, in essence, given us to reveal whose we are? And not just part of a to-do list? I mean, we're commanded not to steal. Who is it that is the thief? None other than the father of lies, the one who comes only to kill, to destroy, to steal. Satan, the deceiver. And once again, in Jesus, Jesus said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I see uh, from my father, and you you do what you have heard from your father. He's making a contrast between those that are and those that are not. Those are verses 34 through 38. And then in verses 43 through 44, Jesus makes it evident that the actions of these men, their actions, weren't just actions in and of themselves, but they were actually proving whose they were. He said, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, John chapter 10, Jesus once again starts talking about how our actions prove whose we are. Turn with me there, John 10. So beginning with verse 1, he's going to contrast himself with somebody else. Okay? Verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by, sheep by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he Here's that contrast. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, for they flee from him, but they do not know the voice of strangers, 1 through 5. Okay, so are you following along here? Can you see the contrast that Jesus is making between himself and the one that he calls the thief and the robber? And then he goes on with this analogy, this parable, this comparison. And in verse 10 he says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Again, the comparison between Jesus and the one that he calls the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But who is it that Jesus is calling the thief, the robber? We desire to automatically assume that he's referring to the father of lies, to the deceiver, Satan, but he's not. He's referring to the false prophets, to fake pastors to those that are of the deceiver, those that represent a false gospel, a different Jesus. They are the ones that are called hired hands in verse 12. These hired hands could not own the sheep of Jesus, yet he calls them thieves because they come to steal from him that which is rightly his. But lest we get so agitated concerning these guys stealing the sheep of God and get concerned about that, understand that those that remain in false religions, in quasi-churches, are not, cannot be of the Good Shepherd. And we know this because this this, this is what the Good Shepherd has said. He says, I am the Good Shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, and he is that shepherd. But having said that, these thieves, they are acting in a manner that represents their father. So the question is, are you a thief? Do you steal? No? Hypothetical question. If you were to come across a $100 bill in a store, laying on the floor, would you you pocket it? Would you pocket it and figure that, man, this must be the providence of God giving you money I mean, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? Ephesians 4.28 tells us, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. But you're thinking, that verse has nothing to do with finding money. Or even how we use our time. I mean, it's specifically talking about the thief. I mean, you you know the thief, the people that who actually steal for a living, but not so fast. In context, that verse reveals a lot more than you think, and it's very relevant to the Eighth Command. Here's that verse in context, Ephesians 4. Paul says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having these things done, since you are of Christ, therefore, having... Put away all falsehood. Let each one of you, speaking to the church again, speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are all members of one and of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving of one another as God in Christ forgave you. So do you see? In context, the one that is called the thief in these verses is the same one that is being told not to act like the Gentiles. The same one that is being told not to be, to be angry and not to sin. The same one that is being told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. To put away bitterness and wrath and anger. This is speaking to all of us. It is speaking to the church. And it's speaking for the church. And why is it that God, through Paul, is telling us? Why is he commanding us to stop being a thief, to start working? Why is it the command to start working, to stop stealing? What did he say so that we can actually own more, possess more, become more affluent? It's not for ourselves, but in order that we can give to those that are needy. We are to emulate our Father if God is our Father, and the stealing that is being spoken of here also includes taking long breaks at work, slacking off instead of being diligent, watching YouTube instead of doing your work, playing Angry Birds or any other video game when you're on the clock, charging more for your services than really what is needed. This is all stealing. And we are commanded to emulate our Father if, in fact, He is our Father. So is God your Father? How you handle material possessions is a great indicator if this is a reality or not. And He's given us two areas to easily discern whose we are. First of all, Do you steal? If God has given you himself, then you are meant to be a good steward of that gift. Do you understand that everything is his? That we are merely stewards of the things that he has given us? There's only one thing that you're going to take with you when you die. One thing that you really do own. Everything else is all temporarily yours. When we enter into eternity, people will no longer be judged by what they own and what they have. But there will be the rich and the poor there, the haves and the have-nots. The rich there, the haves, only possess the riches that they have because they have been given to them. They didn't earn them. They didn't possess them. And they didn't do anything to make themselves more rich or any less rich either. The riches that the haves have in eternity are the riches of Christ. It is the unsearchable riches of Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.8. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 4.7, but we have this treasure an earthen vessel, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And the parable that Jesus tells us about in Matthew 12, 13, 44 through 46, is meant to highlight how the haves, those ones who have the treasure, are Christ. How we're supposed to act. He says, there, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from um, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What are you willing to invest your time in? What are you investing in? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. The treasure that we have is all because of Christ. But this isn't a new idea. And it wasn't ushered in in the new covenant. Isaiah 33.6 tells us, He will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. We think that we're not supposed to fear God. You think that stealing that most valuable gift that he has given you, his spirit, no big deal. I can waste the time that God has given me. It's my time. But what is new? What is different in the new covenant is the what of it all. And that what is Christ. It was his body. Given for you. It was his blood that was shed for the remission of your sins. This is the how and what of that treasure. That any who are of the elect of God have. Given for you. Given to you. And you are responsible for this. You're accountable for it. And are you a thief? And are you one of those false prophets that would try to steal this treasure from God, steal it from him by telling people that it is theirs for the taking, all they have to do is decide that it is of some value. Holding Jesus up alongside the things of this world and try to convince people that he is a better deal than the things of this world. Or perhaps not even better than the things of this world. He's just an enhancement to the things of this world. You have a good life, trust Jesus. He'll give you a better life. He's a seasoning to make your good life better. Are you one that thinks that the shed blood of Jesus is of such little value that it can be wasted, that he died for everybody, But for it to be of any value to you, you must accept that work. Just to have that work applied to your life. And if you're one of those that think of the blood of Christ like this, the second birth in this manner, ask yourself this question. Did you have a choice in the first birth? Did you get to decide on having a soul or not? Or was life given to you, a spirit given to you, as yours and yours alone? No, if you have been given the riches of Christ, they are yours. And they have been given to you specifically. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. But are you wasting them? Are you being a good steward of the Holy Spirit which has been given to you? Do you learn from him? Do you actually engage with him? Study him. Are you being a good steward of the gift of the Holy Spirit and the eternal life that is found in Christ? And then the second area that God has given us to determine if we are of the elect, also concerns stealing from him. Only in this instance, it's not about how we use the spiritual gifts from God, how we use our time, if we're wasting it or investing it. The second way that you are to know, you are able to know that you are his, is by not stealing from him, literally. You all know those verses from Malachi. Those verses that I'm going to mention. So much so that you scoff at them. They're nothing more than the way that the preacher makes sure that he gets his salary paid. But have you ever really considered those verses? Listen to Malachi 3, 6 through 12. He says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Saints, do you desire the best ROI ever? Then invest in the one who has given himself to you. The one that doesn't change. It tells us here that the only reason, the only reason that he hasn't flicked his finger and made the molecules within inside your body just go, bing. The only reason that you aren't consumed is because he is good. And then the verses of Malachi go on, where they say rhetorically, how shall we return? And there it is. The question of those that have distanced, them, distanced themselves from God. The ones that have backslidden, and not just in a physical way. I mean, do you understand that you can come to church every week and still be backsliding? Still be distant from God? His answer, verse 8 Will man rob God? The eighth commandment, once again. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your ties and contributions. Dang, I hate that. You can talk about money. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. I'm not cursed and I don't give. Really? Is that the truth? Oh, maybe things going swimmingly well here. But are you cursed? Because you think nothing of robbing from God. And yes, God was speaking specifically to the nation Israel at this moment. But don't allow that truth to be used as a way that you can distance yourselves from the truth of these verses. The reality of all applies to who you are. Whether or not you are his or not. And then God tells us how we can really show that we are his. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh of hosts. I will not, if I will not open the doors of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And I will, and your vine will, and your field shall not fail to bear, says Yahweh of hosts then all nations will, be called, will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says Yahweh of hosts. And saints, God is not promising riches of the world here to us. God is not promising that if you give him what is rightfully his to begin with, if you stop stealing from him, that you will be rich in worldly possessions. That doesn't necessarily work that way. But what he is promising you here is that if you give to him what is his, then he will give to you the desires of your heart. And those two things are not the same. If you are his, if he has given you his spirit, then the thing that you will desire most in your life is real life, the abundant life, the eternal spiritual Life that astounding knowing God. Saints, what we do with the gifts that God has put at our disposal does reflect the heart that we have for him. And if you are so ethical in your living, so much so that you will not break the, the eighth commandment on a horizontal level, meaning that I will not steal from people. I'm a good steward of my time at work. I'm I'm a good employee, and I would never break into somebody's house and steal from them because I'm not a thief. Are you content then to openly disobey the eighth command when it comes to God in the handling of the things that we proclaim that he has given to us? If we are of him, we are to live by faith. We are to know that all is from the good hand of God. We don't really possess. We really do not obtain wealth. We can't even add a single second to our span of life outside of God. Do we understand that? And then don't trust him to such a degree that we are willing to very much arrogantly disobey him and not trusting him? Do you steal from God? Because the eighth command to not steal is not primarily speaking about people. Once again, it's primarily speaking about our hearts towards the one that has given us life and given it more abundantly. Don't steal from him. And saints, be a good steward of the gifts that he has given you. These material possessions we own so much. But more importantly, the time that he has given you, the spirit that he has given you, the treasure that he has given you in Christ. Saints, what is yours is yours. And no one has the right to steal it from you. But what is yours? What is your most prized possession? What would you miss most if it were taken from you? What would you wish that you used more, taken better care of if it were gone? Is it the eternal supreme treasure that is Christ? Is this yours? If so. Act like it. Treasure the treasure that is Christ. Knowing that no one can steal this joy. No one can steal your hope. The treasure of Christ will never leave you. And you will never outgrow this treasure like your Stretch Armstrong. It will never fade away. It will only grow more valuable, more lovely, more treasured. If this treasure is yours, then don't steal from God by neglecting or not caring for this most treasured gift that he has given you. And that gift is Christ. Let's pray.